Hello and a happy new year to all of you. Welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. My name is Eddie and today's episode is kind of a special bonus episode. Today we're going to be continuing on the theme of the Second World War or the War of Resistance Against Japan as it's known in China. And we're going to be looking into a very interesting change that was made in the Chinese history books just a few years ago. So I have a guest today. Emily is back on the podcast and her PhD thesis is partly focused on the issue that we're going to be discussing. So she's going to act as sort of a guide for us through the murky waters of CCP decision making and how historical memory is used and manipulated by the powers that be. So today, Emily and I are going to be talking about the change in official start date of the Sino-Japanese War from 1937 to 1931. Now, this change was made in 2017, and it was made by the CCP. They had an announcement. So in their announcement, what did they actually say? Like, what was their kind of reasoning or the background that they gave for this change? Yeah, sure. So um, the Chinese Ministry of Education on January 3rd, 2017, issued this directive. And it's a very specific directive in some ways, but I think it has um, pretty deep implications for Chinese society as a whole. The directive states that elementary and middle school educational materials in particular, they didn't mention high school educational materials, but elementary and middle school materials in particular have to specify when they talk about the war of resistance against Japan, um, they have to specify that the starting date is September 18th, 1931. So anywhere where there's a passage that talks about Kangri Janjung and mentions a date, the previous date of um, the Marco Polo Bridge incident of July 7th, 1937 has to be changed in every single instance it occurs. And I'm thinking that maybe high school isn't mentioned because when once you're in high school, you choose the humanities or the science track, right? So not everybody has to study history in high school versus an elementary school and middle school. Everybody does have to study history. So I'm thinking that might be why they just omitted high school and specified that it must be elementary and middle school educational materials. So that would mean basically reprinting all of the official textbooks and collecting up all the old ones and then redistributing like millions basically of brand new textbooks that have this new information in it. Or or perhaps it's for just new textbooks that are printed right and then the assumption is in the old textbooks you just kind of yeah gloss over it but for all new textbooks printed then it has to be that date oh my gosh yeah reprinting everything sounds like a nightmare. I'm just thinking of the scale of it this is quite a monumental change because it's not just a small well it is a small thing in terms of like oh you're just changing a number right you're changing it from seven to a one but in terms of the historical perspective the patriotism the actual meaning behind it it's much bigger than just changing a number right all the textbooks you're right would have to be updated and have some kind of a newer edition printed to reflect that change for sure. Yeah, so basically what we're going to try and get into is, first of all, the reasons that the CCP, the government, might have done this. There's, They didn't give any sort of specific reason, but we have theories. <laughs> we have conspiracy right. theories. We have, we have some spicy theories. <laughs> and um, yeah, we're going to talk about what this means kind of for uh, patriotism and also just historical education in general, because... The way that history is taught in schools, uh, when we were talking 
earlier together, we discovered that actually our historical education is done for a very specific reason, right? So it's not done just, you know, for the sake of learning, for the sake of having fun. It is... What? It's not, Eddie? Are you kidding me? (laughs) I know. Turns out there's an agenda. Who knew? Okay, so let's start with... Actually, this was something that you brought up that I thought was really interesting, was the fact that multiple different countries have multiple different timelines, right? So the Eight Years' War, which was the previous one, so 1937 to 45, that used to be the view in China and is still currently the official line in Taiwan. And then in Japan, they don't have a 14-year war, they have a 15-year war, which is kind of random. I think the timeline is assumed to be the same. Um, I read in one of the articles I shared with you, Eddie, that um, if you take it according to the, um, what's it called? There's a specific term in Chinese for it. It's your age according to the traditional Chinese calendar. So for instance, I am 30, but I would be 31 if you go by my Chinese age. So in this article, that's how they reasoned it. They said, well, the timeline is the same, 1931 to 1945. But if you think of the kind of Chinese age of the war, then according to that particular timeline, it would be 15 years. But if you go to by the Western age of the war, it would be 14 years, which is a really strange way of divvying it up. But anyways, that's what this one Chinese scholar says. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So yeah, for people who don't know, in China, when you are born, you're already one years old uh, by the sort of official Chinese state. But um, I can't remember actually on their, I think on their national ID, it has their Chinese age, but for your passport, you have to have sort of your real age. So counting from zero, which is very strange. Well, they do use both. I know that. Yeah. But you know, don't quote me on that. (laughs) I could be wrong. But But yeah, um, I think the timeline is supposed to be the same in the 15 years war versus the 14 years war starting from September 18th 1931 which is called the Mukden incident largely in Japan Mukden being like the Manchu name for the city of Shenyang where this incident that the Japanese Kwantung army kind of concocts on September 18th occurs but I think it's supposed to be the same timeline just called either 14 or 15 year war depending on where you are super straightforward it seems straightforward, but it has political ramifications. So I think from a Japanese perspective, it makes sense that it's 14, 15, whatever years long, because from their perspective, that was the point in time when their own military aggression, their own sort of imperialist bent was really revving up. And so for them, that was kind of their first big win in, in Chinese territory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the Japanese perspective, it does make sense, um, because even though Manchukuo is supposed to be this independent nation state, oh, nobody can see me who's listening to this, but I'm doing a lot of air quotes at the moment. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the rev up for um, the invasion of the Chinese mainland does begin with the Mukden incident. So I agree, it makes a lot of sense from the Japanese perspective. Whereas in Taiwan, so we haven't got to that point in the podcast yet, but for people who don't know, in Taiwan, the uh, ruling political party for a long time, I don't know if they're still in power, I think they might have lost recently, the KMT for a long time, and possibly again very soon, was in charge in Taiwan. So after they fled the mainland and Chiang Kai-shek took all of his people over to Taiwan, they started running the uh, Taiwanese government and have been ever since the 1950s. They um, did lose recently, but there are elections very, very soon. 
Yeah, Tai Ying Wen is not a KMT from the KMT. She's from a different party. Um, yeah. But the KMT is trying to gain back power. And actually, I know that the CCP wants the KMT back in power because they kind of stick more to the one China policy that, yeah, Taiwan is inherently a part of China versus some of the other political parties in Taiwan are more like, but really? Let's reevaluate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So from their perspective, from the perspective of the KMT and just Taiwan in general, the Taiwanese people, an eight-year war makes more sense because when the nationalists were in control of mainland China, that is the um, period of time when they had this kind of united front and they decided that, yes, we're going to engage with Japan. So it was only after the Marco Polo Bridge incident that Chiang Kai-shek finally capitulated to the pressure, because remember, he was kidnapped, um, capitulated to the pressure and decided to actually fight back against the Japanese, despite the fact that they'd already been there for like six years. The KMT um, really only started resisting Japan after Chiang Kai-shek is kidnapped in the Sion incident, um, which is in December 1936, which is about half a year before the Marco Polo Bridge incident. And then you have the formation in late 36, early 37 of the Second United Front. So from the Taiwanese perspective, which for most of its history being run by the Republic of China under the KMT, it does make sense to begin from when the KMT actually starts resisting Japan as opposed to earlier when the KMT under Chiang Kai-shek is pursuing this um, you know, trade space for time policy and not really doing anything about the increasing Japanese aggression. And also just if we think about it in terms of other events that we've covered during this period. So between 1931 and 1937, you've also got the encirclement campaigns where the nationalists are trying to um, defeat the CCP for good. You have the uh, sort of the fifth encirclement campaign, which is also the beginning of the Long March. So when the CCP has to abandon the Jiangxi Soviet and all the other Soviets that they have and take a year, a year and a bit, to get all the way to their base in Yan'an, in Shanxi province. So the nationalists really are not concerned with the Japanese at all. Like you say, they're trading time for space at the moment. It's like, yeah, the Northeast is kind of not really part of the main part of China. I think we should talk about that a little bit as well. Like how... How was the Northeast, the parts that um, sort of the Soviet Union and Japan were kind of chipping away at, how were they viewed by, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, the Nanjing government, the rest of China? You know, Chiang Kai-shek nominally cares about the Northeast. Uh, he eventually forms an alliance with the warlord that nominally controls the region, Zhang Zhiliang, who also, his father, um, Zhang Zolin, was closely allied with the Japanese, but then they end up assassinating him because they feel threatened by him. His son, Zhang Zhiliang, comes to power as the major Chinese warlord in charge of the region. So Chiang Kai-shek finds it worth his while to form an alliance with Zhang Zhiliang. And so Zhang Zhiliang nominally says, okay, my jurisdiction is part of the Republic of China, but this is never more than nominal. The Nanjing government never has anything close to military control of the Northeast. There are some symbolic government organs set up with, you know, fancy sounding titles like, you know, governor of like Heilongjiang province, like under the uh, 
Kuomintang and stuff like that, but I mean, it's all pomp and circumstance and no real substance behind it. So the KMT never really actually has control of the Northeast. And honestly, I don't think Chiang Kai-shek really gives a damn about what's going on <laughs> up there. Um, you know, even today, if you're around the Nanjing area and you ask somebody about the Northeast or Dongbei, like I, I was interviewing people in, you know, Nanjing in Shanghai and I asked them, you know, what do you think about the Northeast? And they're just like, oh, which means in English, it's, it's such a remote place. Like what even is the Northeast? So that's the perspective of um, Chinese in that region today. You can guess how much more it was the case during, you know, the Nanjing decade and when Chiang Kai-shek was in power. And especially back then as well, it was kind of seen as, in terms of sort of ethnic politics, you've got the previous Qing dynasty, so the invading, the, are they the Xiongnu? I always forget, or they the Jurchen. I always forget which ones they are. I think they're the Jurchen, right? right? I think it was like way, way back. So I think they're one of the ancestral tribes that eventually become the Jurchen. And right, the Jurchen right. eventually um, are the ancestors of the Manchus. Yes, exactly. So you've got these um, sort of tribal horseback riding bow and arrow wielding people who invade in the 17th century from this place that is beyond the great wall so for a lot of chinese people from a historic perspective the places beyond the great wall aren't really seen as china you've got the mongolians up there you've got the jurchens whatever you want to call them the manchus so a lot of these places are not very well settled because these people were nomadic people as well and also they're not they were never fully integrated because also the Qing had a policy of not really allowing the Han into Manchuria. So even by the early 20th century, you don't have a lot of integration between the two regions. Yeah, it was called, I think, the Willow Palisade. The Qing dynasty wanted to reserve Manchuria for the Manchus and not for these Han Chinese, you know, weak-willed people within the Great Wall. It should be reserved for, you know, nomadic, like, hunting and archery and for maintaining, you know, the pure Manchu, I don't know, ethnic identity, which I know um, several of the Qing emperors really struggled with balancing a Confucian identity in which, you know, the ruler should be a classic Confucian gentleman and, you know, write poetry, practice calligraphy and artwork, read the Confucian classics, and what kind of the paramount Manchu leader should be, which is more kind of like wild and virile and good on horseback and good at hunting. And so there are these two different identities. And by cordoning off Manchuria for the Manchus, um, many of the Qing emperors hoped to maintain this separate ethnic identity. It was it was basically physically cordoned off from the you know the regular Chinese people, the Han Chinese majority. So you've got because you've got this physical cordoning off, you've got a political cordoning off. It turns into kind of like a social, kind of like a mental block, right? So. Even before this period, the period of um, sort of the warlord era, the disunity, even before that, you already have the premise that, oh, well, the Northeast isn't really part of China anyway. It's, it's kind of part of China, but, you know, we're not really one yet. The oneness, the unity right. that you see today in China doesn't exist in this period at all. And it's not helped by the fact right. that it's now controlled by a warlord. And then from 1932 onwards you've got the uh, puppet state of Manchu Right, which, I mean, is really controlled by the Japanese, but the Japanese make this great show of 
claiming that it is an independent nation state because colonialism is kind of not fashionable anymore by this point. And they make the excellent move of getting Henry Puyi, who is the last Qing emperor, who is, of course, descended from these Manchu people, to be their kind of puppet leader. So it's kind of come full circle, right? So it's like, oh, yes, the Northeast is this independent state. It belongs to the Manchus. Um, It's fine that it's not really part of China. And for the nationalists, it's a situation where it's like, okay, we need to focus on unifying the kind of body of China, we can think about the head later. Right, exactly. Yeah, that is kind of a bold move, but it definitely works. Well, the international community sees right through it, but I mean, in terms of <laughs> symbolic legitimacy, it is it is an understandable move getting Henry Puyi, you know, the so-called last emperor. You guys should all see the movie. It's a great movie. Um, it was actually done in the 80s, I think, and one of the first movies, foreign films, that was actually allowed in the Forbidden City to be filmed there, but I digress. Anyways, having Puyi as a puppet emperor is is kind of a cunning move on the part of the Japanese so they could be like, hey, look, it is actually the Manchu homeland. These are Manchurians. It is the Manchurian nation state. So this divide, the reason that we're going on and on about this divide between the North and the kind of body of China, it's important when we get to these sort of academic debates about when did the war with Japan really begin? So there was, there is a debate in the Chinese field. I think it begins in the 80s from what you've told me, right? So uh, in this starting point in the 80s, how much of a debate actually exists? Like, is, there a, is it a lively debate or is it just one guy like, this is the hill I'm going to die on? <laughs> So, I mean, it's actually a pretty lively debate. Um, it starts off in... Well, depending on who you ask, like either 1983 or 1984, it's these Northeastern scholars who pretty much argue that, um, hey, we need to move the war timeline back to start with the September 18th incident of 1931 when the Japanese invade um, Manchuria. Um, So I would say that even from the mid-80s, this is pretty lively. Although I don't think until the 1990s and onward, scholars from outside of the northeastern northern China really began to take notice and start refuting it to be like, hey, the Marco Polo Bridge incident is actually the start date just because it had been assumed to be the start date of the war. It wasn't until there started to be more scholars from the northeast who were really pushing their agenda of September 18th being the real starting date that eventually other scholars start to take notice. Um, But there are a few scholars from the Northeast, such as uh, these two scholars named Wang Weili and Gao Aryin. I think I sent you their article, um, Northeastern yeah. Normal University. Um, and they argue that, okay, while the Marco Polo Bridge incident of 1937 is important, it's not important for the reason you all think it's important. It's important because it represents the fruition of the second united front between the KMT and the CCP. You know, this is when the KMT stops trading space for time. Chiang Kai-shek has been kidnapped and mysteriously agreed to form the Second United Front. So these scholars argue that the Second United Front is the real reason why the Marco Polo Bridge incident is important. But if you want to uh, highlight resistance against Japan and the real start of Japan's invasive war, you have to go further back. You have to go back to the September 18th incident. 
And it's interesting that you've highlighted that almost immediately it is a divide between these northeastern scholars are pushing to push the date back because that's when Japan invaded the northeast. So this is kind of like a, a patriotism game right because it's like well we consider ourselves to be part of greater china china is one we're all unified so why historically are we acting as if the northeast didn't matter you know the northeast was this separate yaoyuan far away place and that japanese invasion in this in this short period of time didn't matter until the political parties basically started paying attention to it yeah and i mean there have been um, other international scholars who have noticed the push of Northeastern scholars, but um, with one difference. So I'm talking about the push of these Northeastern scholars from the 1980s onward. Raina Mitter, in his dissertation, which he turned into a book, knock on wood, maybe I will do that someday uh, myself, <laughs> but Raina Mitter um, argues that Um, These uh, Northeastern intellectuals back in the 1930s, after the um, Mukden incident, after September 18th, 1931, they actually play a key role in these national salvation associations um, in southern China. And they play a key role in arguing that, hey, the Northeast matters. Hey, the Northeast is part of China. And this is a matter of national salvation. Whereas for all these Southern Chinese intellectuals before, they didn't give a damn. But after these Northeastern intellectuals, um, you know, start rabble rousing, then the Northeast and losing the Northeast suddenly becomes a theme that people are talking about back in the 1930s. Okay, so it's, a, as usual, it's more in the sort of academic realm. The intellectual classes, sort of, as you say, rabble-rousing, they're making a bit of a ruckus about this particular issue. And perhaps that's part of the reason why it's contributed to the politicians essentially eventually paying attention to what's going on in the Northeast. Not that, Chiang Kai-shek, but yeah. Yeah, right. everybody else. <laughs> but, um, yeah. When I was reading the Wang Wei Li 1986 article, he basically posited, was the Japanese aggression before 1937 a local issue or a national issue, right? right. So was it just about, right. if you remember from the last podcast, listeners, uh, I spoke about how the Japanese set up puppet regimes in different places. So it wasn't just in Manchuria, it was also in Mongolia and a few other places as well. For Wang, what he was saying is, was this just a local incident or was it part of Japan's grand plan, right? So did the Japanese plan to start here and then slowly move into the rest of China or was it sort of like a completely different phase and they they weren't really thinking about invading China? Because I think from the Japanese perspective, it was kind of step one. And so that's his sort of argument, right? He was like, well, this this was just the first phase. It's still part of the sort of longer war and the longer issue of Japanese invasion of China. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Wang Weili and Gao Yin consider it, you know, step one of this massive invasive plan, um, starting with, you know, Manchuria and Mongolia really being this lifeline for Japan. Um, as Eddie has talked about, I believe already, and Japan is very, very poor in natural resources. So Manchuria is sometimes called the breadbasket of the Japanese empire. And so for these Northeastern scholars, uh, September 18th, 1931 really represents, as you said, Eddie, the first stage in this grand invasive scheme of the Japanese. 
Yeah, so he posits that, like, Japan had a plan, basically. This was just step one. So the people who are arguing against, so the people who refute the 1931 argument, what do they respond? What do they say in response to this? Oh, well, their response is really funny, actually. They say, well, if you go back to 1931, you might as well go all the way back to 1894 with the first Sino-Japanese War. That's actually when the Japanese invasive plan started. So it's kind of like, come on, guys, we can keep on going back. We can make it a 51-year war. It doesn't have to just be a 14-year war. So they just think it's kind of a slippery slope. Um, And they really see this as more of you know, regional resistance and July 7th, 1937 being more nationwide resistance. And it's on a totally different scale than anything that comes before it. So Zhang Zhengkun writes um, a one of the main rebuttals. And this is in 2006, where scholars kind of start paying more of attention to this 14-year war argument because, you know, it's gained a lot of ground by this point. Zhang Zhengquan argues that, well, it's only after the Marco Polo Bridge incident that all-out war or Quanmian Kangzhan really broke out. And before it's, um, I think, like Jubu Kangzhan, like it's only, you know, partial or regional conflicts and that Japan's war of invasion only really affected China as a whole after 1937. Before it was just, you know, these different regional aggressive pushes by Japan that largely left people in the majority of China unaffected. And then he talks about the slippery slope argument, like, why stop at 14 years? We could just make this a 51-year war. And so Zhang Zhongquan also talks about all of these different regional conflicts that happened between 1931 and 1937. And he argues that, well, first of all, um, most of the resistance happens between 1931 and 1934. There's really not much fighting that takes place between 1934 and 1937 at all. And you can think of this um, not just in terms of the battle for the Northeast, but also for the um, Huabei incident, and also the Songhu Battle of Resistance in Shanghai that happens in early 1932. So he says, look, these are regional conflicts. They don't encompass the country as a whole. So it really does not make sense to extend the year, the war to 14 years. And he also says, I kind of like this guy's arguments, actually. They make a lot of sense to me. Um, But he says that, you know, after the the September 18th incident, China, not only did China as a whole not resist, but the Northeastern authorities and the Nanjing government, you know, they didn't do anything either. The initial resistance of Ma Zhanshan, who was really lionized in the Northeast, he's the governor of Heilongjiang at the time. The initial resistance of... um, you know, him as a KMT governor and the resistance efforts of the Northeast Volunteer Armies does not happen until multiple months after the September 18th incident. So it's not like resistance even starts right after the September 18th incident. So for me, this was the most compelling set of arguments for an eight-year war that comes out as a rebuttal uh, to refute the 14-year war arguments, I would say. Yeah, I agree that some of his arguments are convincing, I think some of them are nitpicking a bit because I feel like he's oh, yeah. coming. He's got a tone of superiority for sure. So the um the slippery slope. Oh well, why don't we just call it a fifty-one year war, guys? It's very like very nice like, out loud. Like okay, yeah, yeah. You can tell he's kind of just poking fun at them a little bit. 
Um, I think saying, oh, the fighting didn't start straight away is nitpicking for sure. Because if you look at um, World War Two in Europe, multiple different countries have different starting dates, right? So like Britain enters after some other countries have already been invaded and are technically already fighting Germany. And then like Russia doesn't really join in because they've got a neutrality pact with um, Hitler and then it starts for them when Hitler invades Russia. So it's kind of, for me, nitpicking to say, oh, well, because you didn't start fighting immediately that this person picked a fight with you, then you can't put the date specifically on that date because it's more of an inciting incident, right? So for me, that's kind of nitpicking. I think overall his argument is strong. He also does this thing where he appeals to kind of people's sensibilities, right? So he says, I think one of the last things he says is that the reason that people have been convinced by this 14-year war argument is based on coercion, propaganda, and patriotism. So basically, people have been tricked, or they've been guilt-tripped, essentially, into um, believing this thing because the 14-year war people have been spreading this propaganda everywhere, and they're trying to appeal to your sense of patriotism to try and convince you that they're right. And if you don't agree with them, you're basically not a nationalist. Right, so he's it's a bit of a straw man argument, really, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, but I agree with his yeah, um, breadth. Yeah, his breadth and depth argument does make sense, I think. Yeah, so I would say that is the strongest um, set of arguments. I, although he is a little nitpicky and a bit kind of on his high horse that I've found for you know arguing that no, the Marco Polo Bridge incident is the true starting point, and not um, this is where you know academics really start to pay attention to these other academics that are proponents of the fourteen year war. So is it the, there's kind of like a surge of the refutations at this point. Yeah, so now you see it being much more of a dialogue between these two different sides. Um, it's not just those from the Northeast who are arguing for a 14-year war. Now you have this other side in the so-called date debate, which is what I've dubbed it, um, coming out and arguing for an eight-year war instead, whereas... I mean, before this time, it had just been assumed to be an eight-year war, right? You don't really have anyone debating it before, I mean, the 1990s onward. It's just assumed that, yeah, Marco Polo Bridge incident, that is the starting date for Congar Jan Jung, and it was just kind of accepted before this. Yeah, and that's the international narrative as well. And interestingly, there are no international scholars getting involved in this debate, really, from what I've seen. It's, def- it's certainly not a debate from a Western scholarly perspective? Certainly not. This is just a debate within China. I mean, as far as I know, there has been no literature in English on this. So I'm hoping that I can, you know, provide something novel for the scholarship. Yay. But yeah, I was kind of surprised, actually, that there is no coverage of this in Western scholarship at all. It's just purely a domestic affair in China, as far as I know, this academic debate. Because the only thing that I found at all in English was um, there's a guy called uh, Anthony Coogan and he wrote an article for History Today. So not even like a, you know, a top academic journal on China or anything like that. And he's basically just talking about all the volunteer armies that fought from 1931 onwards. So he's not really arguing 
from a political perspective, you know, we should change the date or anything like that. He's just pointing out, well, actually, it wasn't just that the Japanese walked in. There were locals, there were KMT officers who were stuck in the region, and there were local bandits and cult leaders and people like that who were resisting, who were fighting, who didn't make a small dent in the Japanese forces until the Japanese kind of cottoned on and fought back hard. Right. So, I mean, Anthony Coogan, uh, you're right. He's not arguing for a 14-year war versus an 18-year war. He's His contribution is to say, look, there was resistance. There were these Chinese in the Northeast that were fighting against Japan. But he, he doesn't call into question the starting date for the war of resistance against Japan at all, to my knowledge. He's fairly neutral. He's, you know, it's kind of the standard of Western ac- academic writing, where it's just you take a neutral stance and you point out the facts and you let people make up their own mind. But from the perspective of China, this is far bigger than an arbitrary starting date that's, you know, bickering amongst ivory tower academics. This is something that's, you know, people are calling into question other people's patriotism, people's political leanings, people's historical understanding. And even one of the articles you sent me, this um, Zhang Haiyan in 2015, Mm -hmm. he even brings Marxism into it, which I thought was really impressive. Oh my god. He brings Marxist stage theory into this. This was fun rereading for me the day after Christmas, let me tell you. Um, He argues that Marxist stage theory would argue for September 18th being the start of the war, because as of September 18th, 1931, the principal historical contradictions in Chinese society changed. Um, So for him, the main obstacle after 1931 is full-on colonialism, in addition to semi-colonialism, semi-feudalism, and bureaucratic capitalism. Um, So for him, he's like, yeah, according to Marxist stage theory, it needs to be 1931. And it's unscientific to claim otherwise. Yes, he does use the phrase unscientific, which I thought was great when you're talking about Marxism being scientific. So he talks about Marxism. So he's basically bringing another layer. So you've already got like the political perspective versus the kind of uh, patriotic perspective and you've got the military perspective. When did people actually start fighting? So now he's bringing in the ideological layer. So this is really getting into sort of like the meat and potatoes of how Chinese political theory works, right? Because in 2015, so this is two years before the date is actually changed, but by 2015, you've already got Xi Jinping in power. So Xi Jinping is far more ideological in his um, reign, regime, (laughs) than um, previous leaders who have been more neutral ideologically. They've had their own taglines or whatever, but they've been much more focused on sort of business and international relations. That's been their main Right, yeah. Jiang and Hu Jintao for sure were not super ideological. Yeah, so everyone comes Uh, up with their own little, you know, tagline or whatever, but Xi Jinping is way... He's developing his own ideology based off of, you know, the original Marxist Leninist Mao Zedong thought. He is trying to basically add his own Xi Jinping thought onto the end of that. Yeah, and so I I think this fits in really well with why Marxist stage theory is actually invoked by um, these scholars such as Zhang Haiyan, who, by the way, Zhang Haiyan also um, is a scholar in conjunction with the um, 918 or the September 18th History Museum. So this History Museum, which is built in and opened to the public in the 1990s in Shenyang, 
is dedicated pretty much to promoting this, promoting might be the wrong word for it, but yeah, pretty much publicizing this incident as super important for the war of resistance against Japan. So it's interesting that um, Zhang Haiyan is very closely affiliated with this museum in his publication that argues for the starting date um, to be changed. Yeah, so going off of what we talked about previously, Zhang Haiyan also argues uh, that the Marco Polo Bridge incident is an improper starting date for the war because that rests on when the KMT decided to resist Japan and not when the CCP decided to resist Japan. So he's calling into question people's patriotism for sure with that statement. He's like, the CCP, and obviously the Chinese people as well, decided to start resisting Japan much earlier after the September 18th incident. We can't adopt the Marco Polo Bridge incident because one, it rests on when the KMT decided to resist Japan, and two, he also says this buys into the sinister plans of the Japanese at the time as well. He's like, yeah, they called the Marco Polo Bridge incident the China incident because they were trying to separate the Northeast from the rest of China. Guys, if you adopt Marco Polo Bridge incident as the starting date for the war, you're just buying into the Japanese sinister plans from the 1930s all along, which to me sounds like a little bit of a stretch, but I understand where he's coming from too. And it kind of doesn't matter that it's a stretch, right? Because if you're looking at when he's writing, he's writing in 2015. And this debate started all the way back in the 80s. So if you think about where China was um, on an international sort of political level in the 80s, they've just come out of this like stagnant economy from the Cultural Revolution. Deng Xiaoping's only just starting up the uh, building up of the economy, the opening up to the rest of the world, right? So China's kind of, yeah, so China's kind of on like the back foot internationally, the economy is kind of weak, so they don't have a leg to stand on really if they're going to come out and challenge what are this at this point, Taiwan and Japan, much bigger economies. Japan's economy in the 80s is huge before it goes stagnant in the 90s. Japan's one of the most important economies in the world. So if you fast forward to 2015, the roles are completely reversed. So now China is on kind of the stronger ground, right? China is the major power in Asia, both economically. You could, you know, with the Belt and Road, you could argue it's got its own little semi-colonial, semi-imperial system (laughs) going on. And it's China that has is now trying to push with greater unity with Taiwan. It's China that keeps on coming at Japan to get them to apologize again and again and again for the atrocities yeah. of World War Two. So Zhang Haiyan's arguments might be a bit of a stretch to be like, oh, you're agreeing with the Japanese or you're colluding with the KMT. But, but it from- fits in with international geopolitics. Yeah. And it's 2015 too, the 70th anniversary of the end of the War of Resistance against Japan and World War II when he publishes this article. So, yeah, yeah. you're right. Geopolitics. Yeah, oh gosh, the timing. That is so good. So, yeah, it totally makes sense for him to appeal to all of these things, to appeal to the patriotism, appeal to the ideology, appeal to kind of the geopolitical situation and push back against these past aggressors and these past imperialist powers and say, you know, it's the CCP that's running China today. And if it weren't for the CCP during World War II, during 1931, there would be no China. 
Right. And yeah, it's interesting that you see this kind of shift in the CCP's legitimizing narrative really begin in the 1980s, but really gain steam after that with you have Gaiga Kaifang, uh, Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms. You have the collapse of the Soviet Union. You have the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989. And suddenly, class struggle, that whole ideological narrative is pretty much bankrupt. The CCP has to rely much more on um, a narrative of patriotism, of nationalism, of appealing to Chinese from all classes, not just the proletariat. And so I think you can really see that with the emphasis now on the century of humiliation, which ends with the war of resistance against Japan. The war of resistance against Japan is just so important now for CCP legitimacy. It's not that they have bad relations with Japan. It's more as if Japan kind of broke a vase and it was a really expensive vase. And, you know, they've already apologized for it. They've even given China back some money so that they can buy a new vase. But China just won't let it go. And every time Japan comes around to visit, they bring up this broken vase again. And Japan has to apologize once again. So it's more kind of... They're, ho- they're definitely holding it over their heads. They're holding World War Two. They're holding the rape of Nanjing and like everything that happened from that point over the heads of the Japanese, just to remind them every now and again, like, you guys are the bad guys in this situation. Right, and it's not just uh, China. South Korea does this as well a lot yeah. with the comfort women issue. I've heard it referred to as playing the history card in international politics. Yeah, and that we'll talk about that more later, about like the purpose of history and how it's used and things like that. Yeah, and from the sort of Taiwan perspective, we touched on this very lightly, but I can't, who was it that really started pushing for, I think it was Deng Xiaoping, right, who started pushing more for, we need to reintegrate Taiwan, the rogue province, back into the mainland. Because I think it was when he was negotiating for Hong Kong, he started talking about uh, one country, two systems, and he also spoke about Taiwan when he was talking about this. So ever since the 1980s, really, China has been pushing this narrative of Taiwan's just a rogue province, we're going to bring it back into the fold. And kind of, the they've been sort of slowly rehabilitating the image of the KMT. They've gone from, like, the ultimate mortal enemies. Like, if you look at some of the propaganda from the 1980s, 40s up until 1949 even beyond that it's like very extreme like the social revolution for sure yeah it was we we need to take back taiwan we need to liberate taiwan yeah exactly Yeah, absolutely, because you do see this rehabilitation of uh, the KMT. As I've mentioned to you in our previous conversation, you have museums now, uh, such as this one um, museum of this warehouse in Shanghai, where 800 KMT soldiers kind of make their last stand in the Battle of Shanghai and resisting the Japanese. 
And it opens in 2015, I think, this museum that really lionizes these KMT soldiers and their resistance to Japan. So whereas Chiang Kai-shek is still kind of considered, you know, not the best, kind of a shady character, um, many KMT patriots have been rehabilitated and are really lauded and lionized for their roles in the war of resistance against Japan. But um, the CCP still wants to maintain its edge over the KMT as being like truly representative of the Chinese people, right? And so this is my thesis that I was telling you about. Um, one way in which the CCP can keep its edge is to push back the timeline. Before 1937, um, the KMT is trading space for time, whereas the CCP can say, look, we were pushing for resistance to Japan all along since the Mukden incident, since September 18th, 1931. We were resisting Japan all along. We really represented the will of the Chinese people. And that's one way they can do that. So it all kind of comes back to the narrative of uh, the CCP as the um, underdog hero, right? So they're not right. running China. It's good for them, actually, that in the 1930s, they're not running the government. And that's the KMT, because you can just blame everything on the KMT in terms of the actual um, official politics, the official narrative and things like that, the international aspects of it. Whereas you can portray the CCP as these like, you know, we were on the ground, we were with the people, we were also on the run, we had to hide in the mountains, and we were fighting just alongside the regular people in order to push back this invading enemy. And only we could see it, you know, the KMT were chasing us down. We were, you know, we were downtrodden. But even in this situation, we still saw the value of fighting back against the Japanese, which is why we were doing it since 1931. Right. So the KMT can be rehabilitated, but a scapegoat still, like simultaneously, whereas the CCP is still the, is this lovable underdog that is, as you said, you yep. know, resisting with the people since 1931. So I think for modern day politics, right, because the date was changed in 2017. So for modern day politics, this plays into, this is kind of like our conspiracy, spicy, hot theory. <laughs> This is all playing into Xi Jinping's grand master plan, right? So he is now emperor of China and he needs to make sure that he can maintain that position for himself as well as the CCP forever and forever. So how to secure the position of the CCP as legitimate when you are, you know, the economy is not growing as fast as it used to do. You've got problems in equality emerging as most developing countries do you've got all these problems with things like pollution and you know controlling the rogue state of hong kong coming up so you need to continuously <laughs> so you've got to keep finding ways in order to make yourself appear legitimate and possibly even distract people from the real issues that are going on yeah, Japan as the big bad guy is always a really good distracting issue. And pushing back to 1931 also has that effect. Not only does it make the CCP appear as an even more lovable underdog, but it further emphasizes Japan as the aggressor, right? Japan's invasive plan really started not from 1937, but from 1931. So you're looking at six more years of Japanese aggression as well. So obviously the CCP doesn't actually say, why have we done this? You know, 
maybe buried in the archive somewhere. Maybe when we're in like our (laughs) 90s or something, we'll get access to it and be able to do another podcast. Hey, we found it. Found it. We found the doc. We found the circulation that you know went around the Ministry of Education. Um, but for us plebs, we do not know why they suddenly changed this. So the question is, to what extent did the academic debate contribute to the um, official political change? Is it that one? So, for example, is it that the academic debate? was the driving factor or was it more that there was an internal reason within the CCP to change the date and they kind of picked up on the academic debate as like, oh, this is something interesting. Maybe we can use this. This has been going on for a while. I don't, this is the one part of my thesis that I'm still trying to figure out where I stand on this because the into the academic debate definitely influenced what was going on in the internal spheres of government, but whether or not it was the driving factor or one of multiple factors, I'm going to go with one of multiple factors. I don't think I can say I don't have enough proof, enough evidence to say it was the driving factor at this point in time. As you said, we don't really know the real reason that um, the CCP Ministry of Education decided to change the dates of the war, but I think we can definitely at least say that it was an important factor. I mean, it's something that um, the academic community, um, in conjunction with these museums that are largely, you know, funded and controlled by local CCP branches. I mean, we can see the, not collusion, I was about to use the word collusion, the collaboration (laughs) between, um, you know, the party and the academics from the 1980s onward. So there's definitely a case to be made for a pretty solid link between the two. Yeah, because you were saying that many of these museums were founded not... So most of them are founded, obviously, before 2017, but it's kind of like a gradual thing in the North, right? So slowly over time, more and more of these places that are arguing for September the 18th, 1931, start popping up in different locations. And this is before the official date has been changed in 2017 by the government. Right. And they're often associated, you know, with, I mean, these major universities in the Northeast, as well as these museums, like uh, Zhang Haiyan, I mentioned, I mean, he wrote his article in conjunction with the uh, September 18th History Museum in Shenyang. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was pretty much a co-production. So the public sort of education of this so if you think about things like uh museums so these are they're not so much um history education it's more heritage right so museums are there to give us a sense of our heritage where we come from and integrate the present self with the historical self so they usually use a lot of like physical materials i think jang haiyan spoke about how in the shenyang museum there's they've got photos and they have a tombstone as well and he uses these as kind of like physical evidence of his argument you know it definitely started in 1931 because the Japanese were you know already making record of the things that they were doing right and look we have these physical artifacts um, from Japanese scholars that the museum has received that I mean further uh, that that provide further evidence for this yeah exactly so it goes to show that the, at least from, I guess, the heritage perspective, what we want the public to believe and what the public would consume of what they do consume 
of uh, history would be from a heritage perspective. It wouldn't be from a factual perspective because for us, we see history as kind of like a series of things that happened and the causes for those things. Whereas the public consumption of history is more from a heritage perspective, which is how does what happened affect me? How, how am I related to what happened? Whereas we kind of try and remove ourselves from it. And it's like, this may or may not have affected me, but I'm more interested in why it happened. You know, what were all the causes? Yeah. What are the interplays? So I think from a heritage perspective, this particular incident of changing the date shines a light on what the purpose of history education in any nation, not just China is, right? And we had a mini conversation about our own experiences one from the American perspective, one from the British perspective. And it kind of made us realise as well that our own historical education from before we became independent, from when we were in school, was very much directed by a heritage perspective as opposed to a history perspective. It's a really interesting distinction. Yeah, totally heritage, because the narratives that we are well, spoon-fed, as it were, growing up, definitely have a particular nationalistic purpose behind it. So I think from the British perspective, you get taught pretty much the same things over and over again. We get taught about the Tudors and Henry VIII, because that's kind of the foundation of our modern monarchical line. And then you get Britain's role in the First World War and the Second World War. You might learn a little bit about um, the Boer War, but things that we definitely don't learn about include colonialism, imperialism, and Britain's role in the slave trade. So a lot of people, like, you know, if you spoke to the average Brit, they probably couldn't name even one former African colony, let alone, you know, the m- multiple ones Are that we serious? have. Oh, I'm very serious. That's- I'm very very serious you know people can't even name the dates for the slave trade something like that they don't know that the Caribbean was part of the British Empire some people don't even know that Australia was part of the British Empire so we do have this yeah we have a, a, a patriotic sense within Britain that we are big international players even though we're this tiny island I think a lot of people don't understand where that comes from they don't understand the importance that the colonies had and they don't also understand the meaning that losing the colonies had for British international prestige so we've retained the idea of British international prestige but we don't understand the kind of underlying reasons that we would even have those emotions or feelings towards our own nation so yeah the education is lacking Meanwhile, I mean, the U.S., we definitely learn about British imperialism, but we definitely do not learn about U.S. imperialism and its implications. You know, everything really starts with the colonists and, um, you know, Jamestown in the 1600s. Of course, July 4th, 1776, every good American school kid learns that date. We learn about the Civil War and the eradication of slavery. And World War I and World War II, though, we only really learn about America's role. So... World War II in particular, I have a huge bone to pick with America's version of World War II. We learn about, um, you know, Pearl Harbor, obviously, uh, the Pacific War because of America's role in that. We learn about the war in Western Europe because of America's role in that. But we learn nothing about the Eastern Front and about the sacrifices of the Soviet Union or of China. Um, You know, we learn nothing about the Japanese invasion of China either. So the two countries that lost the most 
uh, men by far, the Soviet Union and then China, uh, we learn almost nothing about ever. And that's the same with us as well. We really, we focus very, very heavily on the Holocaust. It's almost as if we're trying to justify why the war had to happen. So there's no, for us as well, there's no Eastern Front. It might as well not exist. The Russian, you know, how many millions of Russians died uh, with Hitler's invasion? It's, you know, it's completely ridiculous. And it's funny that you bring up something like July 4th, because even as a Brit, I know what Independence Day is, right? Independence Day is one of my favourite movies. By the way, so is Saving Private Ryan. So we have this, like, um, mythologizing, right? So we mythologize all of these um, historical events. So you, for you guys becoming independent becomes Independence Day. It's a huge celebration. You guys have got, you know, your fireworks and your everything going on. Going oh, on. our barbecues. We go all out. And, um, you know, for both America and Britain, we've got all these movies, we've got documentaries, we've got books and fictions and all of these romance stories about World War II, right? So the mythology... Right the social and cultural importance of World War II, things like Remembrance Day as well, is really ingrained into our societies. But the actual grand sort of international perspective of it, we don't have that information. Like people don't have that as general knowledge. People, I read another article the other day that said people are starting to forget how many Jews died during the Holocaust. And the number that people... Too, yeah. yeah, and the number that people guess, if you ask them, is getting lower and lower. So that's even that sort of factual element of it is losing its sticking point in people's minds, right? And it's all just about the heritage aspect. What was our role in the war? What did we do? What can we remember? We remember our own fallen soldiers, our own glory, our own victory, but we forget about the international community element of it. That's really dangerous um, that that's happening, right? Because it it leads to this sense of isolated nationalism or populism, as it were, without really regarding the rest of the international community and its historic role. I mean, there's a reason why these are world wars. They're not national wars. Yeah, exactly. And you would forget that it's world wars. For example, in the UK, we don't learn about how many... I think most of our soldiers came from the colonies. So, so many people from the colonies came to fight or fought in their own areas. Like, just look at the Australians, the Indians, the Southeast Asians, um, the African men who came over as well to fight in the war effort. These are millions of people. So to to just kind of erase their role, essentially, and just focus on the national element of it really does sort of show how much history education is just basically heritage propaganda. Yeah, totally. We learn nothing about the war in Africa, too, or what happens to the French Empire after Hitler's invasion and, you know, Vichy France. We learn about the name Vichy France, but not about the implications for all of France's colonies either. So that's another element that's just left out. We only care about what happens on um, the, not even the European sub like continent, but on the Western half of the European continent. I was just going to say that the invasion of Czechoslovakia, we learn as kind of the kickoff point for the for Britain's involvement in the war, but we never learn what actually happens in Czechoslovakia. No one cares. Like, no one cares that it becomes yeah. the Czech Republic and Slovakia afterwards. Like, no one cares about these things. And it's just really strange. If When you actually learn about it, you realise how much in school 
is just glossed over. Even in public history museums, public holidays, things like that, we just gloss over so much information. And it's especially kind of disheartening when we live in basically the information age, right? You can learn anything about anything instantly, essentially. Like the amazing website that you sent me about American history, which I'm now addicted to. So... Yeah. So I guess it's a case of how what we're going to do right now is we're going to fix public history education. We're going to do that right now on this podcast. I, I'm I mean, up for it if you are. I mean, if if you are listening to this podcast right now, obviously you believe that educating yourself about historical events that you didn't necessarily know about is already an important or even just interesting, even if you don't think it's important, but it's just something that you like to do. That is a good enough start for me. So I guess what are some ways in which people can inspire themselves or that we can inspire other people to learn more about history as a global phenomenon as opposed to heritage as a national phenomenon? Oh, that is a wonderful question, Eddie. I think you starting this podcast is a good first step, you know, just putting yourself out there and what you know. I mean, we are historians, but we don't want to be just historians in ivory towers. Um, I think you and I are very similar in that Sure, we can write scholarly articles for a very select, limited audience, but I think for both of us, it's important to engage with the public, the educated layperson, on what we learn to make it accessible to a broader, wider audience, right? We don't want to be historians just so we can sit in our little ivory towers and talk amongst ourselves. Exactly. And also, these things already exist. Like, we're not the first people to do this. (laughs) People have been trying to educate audiences forever. So a book that we're both about to read is a very short introduction to American history. But the, A Very Short History is an, an Oxford series of books. And I've read one of them before. I, I think I read a, a very short history of um, it's either colonialism, Nigeria, or Islam. I can't remember which one it is now. Yeah, there are lots of very short histories. It's a whole series. Yeah, and I think they're pretty good if you just want kind of... a a broad, brief, well-written, sort of like easy reading just to get yourself, you know, like more knowledgeable about something. I always find it's fun when you're like, oh, I didn't know that. And you like learn a new fact, basically. So those books are really good for yeah, that feeling. My favourite hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you also, you recommended a good YouTube video, which is called The Fallen of World War Two. I thought that was a good video. It's, yeah. not, it's not too long, it's like 20 minutes. Oh, that's a good point, actually. Sub China has like a list of um, hosted podcasts that they have all about China. Um, they do they cover like business, they cover feminism, they have interviews with experts in different fields. So yeah, definitely check those out as well. Those are good if you're interested more specifically in China. But I think in general, I find my personal mission as a historian, aspiring historian, is to educate a broader audience and kind of bring bring history down to the people, basically, as Mao Zedong would have wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a noble mission to be sure, and one I also share. So hopefully once we've written our thesis, we can publish them, get book deals, and start writing popular history and sell out completely. Sounds like a good life plan to me. <laughs> cool. Okay. So, 
Thanks very much for listening, guys. If you want to hear more from Emily, she's very active on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is... Sinophile Madison. Sinophile Madison. Sinophile. That's a fancy way of saying somebody who loves China. So S-I-N-O-P-H-I-L-E. Followed by my surname, which is Matson, M-A-T-S-O-N. Great. So you can follow her. Please ask me any questions you'd like. Yeah. And I always see that you're always throwing out like recommendations for books and articles and asking interesting questions as well. So yeah, if you're interested in keeping up to date with China, Emily is much better at it than I am. So follow her on Twitter. I wouldn't say that, but follow both of us. How about that? Yeah. Okay, great. So thanks very much for listening, everyone. And I'll see you in the next episode, which will be sometime in mid-January. Don't forget to also check out the Sinobabble website at sinobabble.com, as well as our Twitter handle at Sinobabble, which is infrequently used, but exists nonetheless. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you tune in next time.